As businesses transform to become more digital, the number of software as a service, better known as SaaS offerings, that businesses implement have grown exponentially. SaaS applications can help businesses find new revenue streams, work more efficiently, and more. However, more applications can also mean more exposure to privacy and security risks. Today, we will discuss some of the risks inherent in engaging SaaS providers and some of the ways businesses can mitigate or manage these risks. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, we explore the urgency behind SaaS contract planning with Matt Pearson and Craig Carpenter. Matt and Craig are both partners in the Digital Assets and Data Management Group at Baker Hostetler. Matt is in the group's Privacy and Digital Risk Class Action and Litigation Team, and Craig is the practice group leader for the firm's Dallas office. Welcome to the show, Matt and Craig. Happy to be here. Thanks, Amy. Happy to be here. Matt, you've mentioned that SaaS contracts are top of mind for your clients right now. Why are they so important, and why now? To be fair, SaaS contracts have always been important. They have become more top of mind lately because clients are being sued based on and being held liable because of their SaaS contracts. For example, in the last couple of years, two SaaS companies that provide a relatively mundane service, file transfers, were breached. Those breaches had an incredible ripple effect. The SaaS companies who were breached held the data of their own customers, but they also held the data of their customers' customers, they held the data of their customers' customers' customers, and so on. And when that data was compromised, it wasn't just the SaaS company that took the hit. It was also the SaaS company's customers. Those customers were under notice obligations, and it was those customers who ultimately got sued. Clients assume that because they were not the company that was breached, the SaaS company should indemnify and defend them. Unfortunately, that is rarely the case. In these situations, indemnity is almost always determined by what is in the SaaS contract, and almost always the SaaS contract's indemnity and limitation of liability provisions heavily favor the SaaS company. We usually see something along the lines of the SaaS company's liability is capped at what the client paid for the service over the last three or six months and doesn't include any consequential or indirect damages. And since many of these contracts are for very small amounts of money, maybe $5,000 or $10,000 per month, that limitation of liability provision can really leave clients holding the bag when it comes to litigation. Craig, given SaaS contracts' importance, what can clients do going forward to protect themselves? The situation described by Matt is unfortunately all too common. SaaS is so ubiquitous in business these days that unless we're talking about like a major enterprise level software, these agreements often go overlooked. Uh, however, Matt gives some compelling reasons why these type of agreements may be more important from a risk management perspective than their dollar value would otherwise indicate. For these reasons, businesses should take a holistic approach to managing SaaS vendors and SaaS related risk. It's too easy for businesses to see the dollar value of one of these agreements and you know, realize maybe, okay, this is not a bet the company type situation based on the dollar value of the agreement, and just sign whatever's put in front of them to keep the negotiation moving. Or maybe the vendor will dangle an expiring discount in order to motivate the business to move quickly on negotiation. 
And you cannot prevent your vendors from being breached or having some sort of data security incident like Matt was talking about. Uh, but you can take steps to, pr to protect yourself. I think the best approach includes three practices that can lead to a better SaaS contracting. First is vetting your SaaS vendors before engaging in contract negotiations. Second, as Matt highlighted, uh, negotiating the appropriate protections and obligations in the actual contract. And third, uh, having some post-execution contract management practices in place. With regard to the first practice, vendor vetting, this is a really important first step. And it's probably also the easiest step uh, because you're not having to deal directly with a vendor in sort of an adversarial way. Um, and you're, you may not be in a time crunch yet to get something signed up. Uh, so you want to make sure that the team looking to onboard a new SaaS solution or SaaS vendor, whether that's legal, IT, procurement, or one of the business divisions, they need to fully understand who the vendor is, you know, including understanding affiliates and parent companies and all the related entities. They need to understand where that vendor is located and where these services will be provided. And that's important from a privacy perspective, whether it's local or offshoring. And also, have they had any public privacy or information security incidents in the past? These three questions are critical to understanding and quantifying the risks that Matt mentioned at the onset, especially these risks as it relates to privacy and security issues. If you don't have this information before negotiating a contract, your team should either find it or ask. It's often easier to get information out of a vendor when they think they're about to sign up a new client versus after the deal is already done. Second, you're going to want to have your attorney review all the applicable terms for the agreement. And I say terms instead of contract here purposefully because these days, SaaS contracts typically have multiple documents and agreements that may be spread out over several different links or attached to other versions of the agreement. Uh, and some of the really expensive issues and risks that Matt discussed will often be found in some of these ancillary agreements. So it might not be in the main agreement. And it may seem like overkill at times to do a full legal review of some of these smaller SaaS deals, you know, like, like Matt talked about the $10,000 a month deal, but typically a good SaaS attorney knows where to focus and where to spend their time on the big ticket items like identification, limitation of liability, and the data privacy and security controls. A good SaaS attorney will also understand how these provisions work together and how negotiating one of these provisions like identification might impact the others like limitations of liability and privacy controls or might impact ultimately future litigation like Matt alluded to. Finally, a good vendor management program doesn't end when you sign on the dotted line. You wanna make sure that you're aware of your audit rights and notice obligations. In today's privacy and security environment, it is more critical than ever to make sure you have audit rights but not only that, but also to exercise them when necessary. For example, California's privacy law requires that businesses not only obligate their service providers to provide audit rights, but also that the businesses take reasonable steps to ensure compliance by exercising these rights uh, to audit as needed. Thanks, Craig. Matt, assuming a client does proactively work to negotiate their SaaS contracts, how does that change the posture of litigation if and when a client is sued? It can change it drastically. There are some obvious benefits, many of which Craig just mentioned. 
If a client has negotiated a favorable indemnification and limitation of liability provision, the client may be able to avoid having to pay for the breach investigation, the response, including notification, and the inevitable litigation that follows. But there are also some that are a little less obvious. For example, even if a client couldn't negotiate the most favorable indemnity or limitation of liability provision, just the act of negotiating them on the front end can provide some benefits. Boilerplate contractual provisions often leave clients wondering who pays for what, when, and how. Paying attention to negotiating a SaaS contract on the front end can make answering these questions much easier if and when they ever come into play. It also changes the optics of the litigation. When a client gets sued for something a SaaS company did, the first question it has to answer is, what did you, the company, do to make sure this SaaS company was secure before providing them your data? Craig can build into these contracts certain reporting requirements and audit requirements that, at the very least, show that the client was taken seriously and actively monitoring the companies to which it was sharing its data, which can be very helpful in defending negligence claims. Moreover, Craig can build into the contract reporting and audit requirements that make sense. We often see audit and report, reporting requirements that are either completely over the top or entirely lacking. With the former, the client is inundated with information and rarely reviews it. For the latter, even if the client does review it, nothing in those reports is going to adequately inform the client. In truth, there are an innumerable amount of benefits to paying attention and negotiating SaaS contracts on the front end. The only real drawback of doing so is the time and money required. But our firm has been able to develop for clients procedures that limit the cost of SaaS negotiations while protecting the client should litigation ever result. Thanks, Matt. Craig, as a final question, for folks listening today who want to do something right now, what are the top three things they should consider doing? Yeah, as I talked about before, I really think the best protection is to have a holistic vendor management program. And I know that sounds like a big undertaking, especially for smaller companies or mid-sized companies that are, that are dealing with some of these smaller SaaS agreements. A lot of them may be click wrap or online terms and conditions. Uh, but I really think you can right-size a vendor management program to suit your needs. You know, not every business will need a full suite of vendor management tools or a formal documented written program, although we would always recommend that. But you can always start by implementing the three steps that Matt and I have discussed, namely vendor vetting, contract negotiation, including special attention on the provisions that Matt talked about, like identification, limitations of liability, and data security controls, and also keeping track of your vendors after you sign and, and the audit rights that Matt discussed. And so doing those things, those three things combined with making sure that you have trial counsel, someone like Matt that understands SaaS and SaaS agreements, that's teed up for when there's a problem and you need to understand your rights and obligations. You want to make sure your trial counsel is aware of the positions that you typically take in SaaS agreements uh, with respect to some of these critical provisions like identification. Besides that, I think the best thing that, that businesses can do is really take time to do a little bit of what we're doing here today and educate relevant stakeholders as to why today's consumer privacy environment 
SaaS agreements may have risks that are really disproportionate to their dollar value. And that's why we may need to spend a little extra time and legal muscle understanding these, negotiating these, and making sure that we're comfortable with our positions. Matt and Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Amy. If you have any questions for Matt or Craig, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Host are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practice and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.